Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we'll be spending time this morning in verses 11 to 22. It's on 976. It could be 977 in the Bible and the chair in front of you. Uh, so that's Ephesians t- chapter 2. Now, as you're turning there, uh, many of you know, these folks from Old Oak Bible Church, that it's taken many a Saturday to sort through, pack up, sell, and donate all our stuff. It's been really humbling after reading Exodus to see how the Israelites packed up everything in a single night and moved. Uh, and it's taken us so long. Uh, but I digress. One, one thing we've done there has been good that's come out of this packing. And that's, I, I posted some of our items on the Cleveland Hope Fellowship of Churches. It's a fellowship we belong to. Uh, posted it on their Facebook page. See if, see if any other church could use some things that we weren't gonna, going to use. And one man, Abraham uh, Diali, I, I think that's how you pronounce his last name, um, he responded. He's the pastor of the church we just prayed for, International Fellowship Church in the West Park area of Cleveland. International Fellowship Church is a church mainly of refugees from Bhutan. They all speak Nepali. Um, Abraham's been here for about 10 years, um, and he's just an immensely kind and joyful brother. Um, and so he came to Old Oak's building with one of his deacons, an older gentleman he, who did not speak English. They, they picked up chairs, a pulpit, a table, a desk, a bookshelf, and more. This was a huge blessing to them. It was a joy. And Abraham couldn't stop saying thank you. In the middle of our loading the U-Haul on another cold Saturday in January, Abraham uh, stopped and, and said this to me. He said, thank you so much. Be- and he said something to this effect. Because of, because of all this stuff that you've given to us, we now feel like a real church. I wonder, what do you think of that? It was too sweet and too sincere for me to correct it. Um, but that statement stuck with me. Like I said, Abraham's lived in the U.S. for about 10 years. I don't know all the workings of his heart and, and his mind, but I would wager that the wealth and materialism of the American church has made him think that his church is somehow second class. In his words, more than that, that his church is not even a church. He has picked up that stuff must be so valuable that if you don't have it, then you must not be a church. And that's not true. Today we're going to get another reminder from the word that our status and our belonging in the church does not come from us. Doesn't come from the stuff we have. Doesn't come from the color of our skin. Doesn't come from how much education we've received. Doesn't come from how many numbers are here or our age or anything else. Our wealth and status in the church, or sorry, our status and belonging in the church does not come from us. It comes from Christ. So as a review of Ephesians 2 so far, in the first half of chapter 2, Paul laid out God's work of grace in general. How God has made us uh, who are dead in sin alive in Christ and has sent us back out into the world. And now in the second half of Ephesians chapter 2, Paul hones in on God's grace in particular. So in the second half of chapter 2, we see how Paul encouraged these uh, Gentile Christians, uh, and he encouraged them by correcting a misimpression that they had. 
that they are not second-class Christians, that Christ has given them full status and full rights in the kingdom of God. So what, are his, what is Paul's encouragement to the, the Gentile Christians in Ephesus? What are his instructions? I think we see three big ones. These will be the three sections of our time. First, remember who you were. Remember Christ and remember who you are now. First, remember who you were. Structured very similarly to the first half of Ephesians 2. We're looking here at verses 11 and 12. You can follow along as I read. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is in the flesh made by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So when he called these Gentile Christians to remember who they were, remember their past, he points out a mischaracterization and then true characterizations of their past. So first, the mischaracterization. We see here Paul drew attention to a derogatory label that Jewish people had for non-Jewish people. You see that they called them this uncircumcision. Circumcision, you might remember if uh, you're familiar with Bible background, it was a way to mark off that you belonged to the people of God, a, a physical marking. And it became a source of pride for the Jewish people. For instance, pious Jews would pray every day and thank God that they were not born a Gentile. Or from John chapter 8, we see another contention between the Pharisees and Jesus. And the Pharisees responded to Jesus' claim that they saw as bogus, that he was the son of God, by telling Jesus, hey, we are descended from Abraham. We know what we're talking about. Jesus retorted in John 8 to tell them, I understand that you're descended from Abraham physically, but you are not descendants from Abraham spiritually. You do not share his faith. You do not share his works. After all, these guys were on the hunt to kill Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul is doing something similar here. He's addressing a mischaracterization, a misunderstanding. He's saying a physical outward label is not what ultimately matters. God told this to his people over and over again in the the Old Testament, that he cares about a circumcision of the heart, that the outward sign of circumcision was supposed to represent an inward reality of their heart, that they were set apart and devoted to God. So Paul brings up in verse 11 this mischaracterized label as a way to tell them what they should not remember about who they were. It's as if Paul's saying, you know, other people might tell you that this is what you should be ashamed of, but don't let that distract you from the real predicament that you're in. And we could fall into the same trap. Like with the kids' time, we can get caught up in labels that ultimately don't matter, that are not of ultimate importance. And these labels can get in the way of the labels that actually are of ultimate importance. So we get caught up in labels of how many degrees that you have, the initials after your last name, the num- uh, how much money that you make, your salary. Get caught up in labels like who you voted for. 
It's not that none of these matter, but they don't matter in the ultimate sense. And these can get, way, get in the way of the things that do matter in the ultimate sense. So this is a mischaracterization. So what is it about their past that the Gentile Christians should remember? Well, look again at verse 12. Here Paul identifies five true characterizations of who these Gentile Christians were. First, we see they were separated from Christ. This indicates that they had no expectations for the Messiah, the anointed one. Messiah and Christ refer to the same word. You see, Jesus was born in Israel as a Jew. He lived around Jewish people, all of whom had the expectation, albeit a misguided one, for God to send the Messiah through the line of the Jewish king, David. So the Gentile Christians, not only did they not know about Jesus, they didn't even know that they needed a Messiah. They were separated from Christ. That's who they were. Second true characterization of their past. Paul says that they were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. This indicates citizenship. They lacked the blessings that came with uh, being a citizen of Israel. You see, Israel was the nation to whom God bound himself, ruled over, made promises. And these Gentile Christians were formally excluded from that. And therefore, third, true characterization of their past, they were also strangers to the covenants of promise. God had always had a plan to include people from the nations surrounding Israel into his kingdom. But the Gentile Christians didn't know about that plan, in large part because Israel had failed to live out that plan and make it known. So therefore, fifth characterization about, or fourth characterization about their past, they were without hope. And it's no surprise that they were without hope because fifth, they were without God. This was their past. Romans 1 says that everyone knows the truth about God, but that we all suppress that truth. And we exchange that truth we know for a lie. Instead of worshiping the God who made us, we worship gods that we make ourselves. And all of us who do that know that deep down, the the gods we make cannot satisfy the deepest longings of our heart and do not give us any answers about our future. So rather than talking about deep topics like the meaning of life, or what's to come, we settle for distractions. We are on our own, without hope and without God in the world. This was their past. One commentator summarizes it like this. They were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. So verses 11 to 12, Paul started with a mischaracterization of their past, but then he takes a surprising turn. He, it's like he tells them, You don't understand. The truth about your past is actually worse than you think that it is. And it's actually worse than what other people say. Do you feel encouraged yet? Why would they need to remember this? He tells them a couple of times, remember. Think about this. If they truly remembered that this is who they were, it would then lead them to the conclusion I shouldn't even be here. I shouldn't even be here. Think about that. That's true for every person in this room. You shouldn't even be here. 
There is no reason we should have heard about Christ. You know, maybe your story is like mine. Parents are Christians, and because they love and follow Jesus, uh, you have heard the gospel from a young age, how Jesus lived, died, and rose again for sinners. We call that story ordinary. We call that story boring. But friends, think about this. My story, just like every other Christian's, is the story of God in his grace seeking me out because I didn't have to have the parents that I did. I didn't have to be born in the place and time when, when and where I was born. And more than that, other people have the same circumstances that I did. And God left them to their own natural desires. God could have left me as I wanted to live. But God plucked me. I shouldn't be here. And that's true for every one of us. Do you understand that? Our heritage is the same one verse 12 describes. We need to remember this because this is where God stooped down, reached down to, and saved us from. So do you want to sing amazing grace like it is actually amazing? Remember who you were. When we remember who we were, it opens the door to remember Christ. Paul told the Gentile believers in Ephesus that the bad news is even worse than they think, but that means that the good news is better than they ever dreamed. Follow as I read verses 13 to 18. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. These verses show us what Christ has done and how Christ has done it. But these verses begin 13 to 18. They begin with a summary. So in verse 13, Paul summarized what is preceded and summarizes what the few verses that will follow. So he summarizes our former state. Notice he summarizes who we were with the phrase far off. He summed up what Christ has done for us in the phrase brought near. He summed up how Christ did this with the phrases in Christ Jesus and by the blood of Christ. So we are now near God because we are in Christ Jesus, united to Christ. Christ is able to bring us back to God because of his death in our place, his blood on the cross. We'll get into more details about that later. But before we move on to what Christ did and how Christ did it, we need to be clear from the outset about the crux of the issue. Being near God. That's, that's the crux of the issue. Being near God, at peace with him, reconciled to him. I bring this up because we can get this wrong without even realizing it. Martin Lloyd-Jones is really helpful to me on this here. He tells us that we think the crux of our problem 
is goodness and behavior. These are symptoms, not the main cause. Notice how Paul summarized the change that has taken place for the Christian. Paul didn't say, you guys have improved so much. You are now living a better life. True as those things may be for the Gentile Christians in Ephesus, those are the effects, not the cause. Instead, Paul said that the main change that has taken place for the Christian is that we are now near God. Is that true of you, friend, that you are near God? Well, very well. Let's move on from the summary to what Jesus has done. Paul tackled this in verse 14. You look there again. Now, Paul will later say that Jesus made peace and Jesus preached peace. In verse 14, he says that Jesus is our peace. In Jesus, we enjoy a twofold peace, peace with God and peace with each other. Now, prior to that peace, Paul says that there is a dividing wall of hostility that prevents peace on both of those fronts, peace with God and peace with each other. Though we didn't spell it out uh, explicitly, Paul likely alluded to the walls in and surrounding the temple in Jerusalem when he's talking about this dividing wall of hostility. Yeah, I, I appreciated our discussion on this past Wednesday night uh, where we are sharing what we're reading in the Word currently and maybe questions we have about it. Uh, Don was sharing his reflections uh, reading the book of Leviticus how he would, he's been just stunned by all of the sacrifices in the book and honestly, uh, how bloody these sacrifices were, uh, observing that. And then, and then I, I appreciated how Randall chimed in and shared one of his insights that he's had from the book of Leviticus. He said that um, all of these instructions in Leviticus, whether it's the sacrifices or setting up the tabernacle or dietary restrictions All of these should serve to remind us of how holy God is. In particular, we think back here and with Ephesians 2, the veil in the tabernacle and later in the temple that separated the holy place from the most holy place where God's presence would dwell should remind us that we are separated from God and cannot approach him on our own merits. But Jesus entered the most holy place as the ultimate high priest. He entered it on our behalf, made full and final payment for our sin, and now that veil separating us from God is torn from top to bottom. But more than making a way back to God, Jesus also broke down the wall between the Jews and the Gentiles. And this would have, Paul maybe had another physical wall in mind. Also in the Jerusalem temple. The temple was like a series of concentric squares. The most holy place, then the holy place. Then you got the court of the priests, then the court of Israel, then the court of the women, and then the court of the Gentiles. Walls separating each. Now, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, the wall separating the Gentile court from the Jewish courts had inscribed on stones around it, throughout it, that no foreigner was permitted to enter upon penalty of death. In other words, all trespassers will be shot. But Jesus has made a way for Jews and Gentiles no longer to be separate, 
but together. This is what he has done. He has broken down what separated us from God and what separated us from each other. How did he do this? Look at verses 15 and 16. And there I want you to notice three verbs in those verses. Abolish, create, reconcile. This is how Jesus made peace with God and peace with each other. Jesus has made peace with God and peace with each other by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus abolished the law as a way to peace with God. Jesus fulfilled, according to Romans, the righteous requirement of the law. According to Galatians, he bore the curse of the law that we deserved. And now he sends his spirit so that we may fulfill the righteous requirement of the law that we could never do on our own. Jesus abolished the law of commandments expressed in ordinances and thus also made peace between Jews and Gentiles, not just peace with God. That's because one of the functions of the law was to show how Israel was distinct from the nations surrounding them. This explained Israel's practices like circumcision, like their dietary restrictions, why they didn't eat certain foods. But now Jesus has fulfilled everything that made Israel distinct. And those who are now distinct are not those who are physically marked off or refrain from certain foods. Those who are distinct are those who belong to and follow Jesus. This is what Peter finally realized as we read in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius, a Gentile, trusted in Christ. So how did Jesus make peace with God and peace with people? He abolished something old, second verb. He created something new. With the barrier gone, the groups no longer had to stay separated. They could come together as one and come together in Jesus' name. This new unity in Christ overcomes not just the division between Jew and Gentile, but really all earthly divisions. The Bible talks about how it overcomes social divisions and divisions between male and female. Galatians 3.28, Paul wrote this, that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now just to clarify, it's not that our differences disappear. Rather, a new beautiful unity forms that runs deeper than any of our differences. And this unity is that each Christian, each person who trusts in Christ has an equal standing before God because they stand not in themselves, but in what Jesus has done for them. So how has Jesus made peace between us and God and between us and each other? He's abolished, he's created, he's reconciled. Look there at verse 16. Verse 16 tells us that prior to reconciliation, there was hostility. Do you realize that on our own, that we are not okay with God? Standing on our own, we are not okay with God. I, I wonder how that would reshape how you think about your non-Christian neighbor or non-Christian family member. If you do not trust, follow, and love Christ, 
let's just kind of cut through it here. If you do not do those things, you are refusing to do what God has called you to do, and you are under his judgment. That's just what it is. You can dress it up in politeness as much as you want. If you refuse to do that, you rebel against God. That means there is hostility that must be overcome. And the good news, the amazing news, is that God has made the first move to overcome that hostility. Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When Jesus overcame the hostility we have with God, he made a way to overcome the hostility we have with each other. I love the way John Stott put this. He said, when Christ bore our sin and judgment on the cross, God turned away his own wrath. And we, seeing his great love, turned away our wrath also. So at the cross, just to summarize, Jesus abolished what separated us from God and each other. He created a new humanity with deeper bonds than any division that we have. And he reconciled this new humanity to God and to each other, killing the hostility that existed before. Now, before we move on to what that means for who we are now, Paul dabbles in some application in verses 17 to 18, ways to apply what Christ has done and how Christ has done it. Verse 17 tells us to continue to preach this peace that comes through Christ alone. Preach this peace that comes through Christ alone. Just indulge me for a moment. I want you to think about your commute every day. That's if you are commuting and not working from home. Please still leave your house. (laughs) Um, um, Think about your neighborhood and the houses and the apartments that you pass all the time. Maybe you pass by homes that still have a Biden or Trump yard sign. Maybe there's the family you know who is always making a racket and who has five broken down cars in, in their driveway and working on each of them. Maybe that resonates with someone here. (laughs) Maybe there is the person, the neighbor you know who you've friended on Facebook, but they post an obnoxious amount of political opinion. Maybe down the streets, there is a family from Iraq who is Muslim and doesn't know anyone. Maybe there is the attractive family who wears Patagonia jackets and drives a Subaru Outback who rave about all their fun adventures and perfect life. Think about these homes. It does not matter if you are a so-called good person in the eyes of the world or if you are a straight-up awful person in the eyes of the world. If you do not have Christ, then you are at odds with God. That's just it. The only chance we have for peace with God is if we trust the one who lived the life that we did not live and died the death that we deserved. So Jesus lifts up those who think that God can't reach them. And Jesus brings down those who think that they don't need God. In the new humanity Christ has made and reconciled to God, there is no space for feeling inferior or superior. Whether you were far off or supposedly near, your only hope is Christ. I want you to think about those homes again. 
Verse 17 calls us to preach this peace that Jesus has won. In many of those homes and apartments that you drive by every day, there is a lot of pain. There is people who are always on edge and fighting. In many of those homes, there are broken relationships and marriages and families. You see, the divisions and brokenness that we see in the world, that we see in humanity, point to our need for Christ. So friends, point other people to Jesus through your words. Say his name through your character, through your actions. Jesus is the one who restores what's broken, reconciles what's hostile. He gives the model of reconciliation. He took the first step. He placed the cost on himself. He is the only one who can bring us peace with God, which in turn will lead us to the most meaningful peace we have with each other. Preach this peace that Jesus has won. Verse 18 is application still of how to apply, how to live out what Jesus has done and how Jesus has done it. Verse 18 tells us to enjoy the peace that Christ has won for us. We have access to the Father because of Jesus' work on the cross and the Spirit's dwelling in us. Access to the Father. When I was in middle school, my friends and I were thrilled. I don't know how it happened, but we got our hands on Ted Ginn Jr.'s cell phone number. I don't know if you know who Ted Ginn Jr. is. Uh, he was a really good wide receiver for Ohio State, and he had a, a successful NFL career. I don't, he's from Cleveland, um, played high school football here. We just got his number. And so we would just, on a whim, call him, see if he would answer. He never would. But we would always, we always got his voicemail. And just to hear his voice on the voicemail was exciting for, you know, 11-year-old kids who love sports. Here's an argument from the lesser to the greater. If that is what thrilled me, then how much more should having the ear of God himself thrill me? Of God being our father, our friend. Would you please take that in? Every time you pray, you have access to the Father. This, is, this does not come naturally. It came at an unimaginable cost. Now that we have remembered who we were and remembered what Christ has done, we can remember who we are now. Let's read verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So who were the Gentile Christians in Ephesus now? They were citizens of the kingdom, members of the household of God, living stones in God's temple and God's dwelling place. This is who they were now. Now remember that on their own, they were strangers to the covenants of promise, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. But now they are fellow citizens with the saints. As one commentator put it, they used to live on uh, passports. Now they have birth certificates. Now the citizenship Paul talks about here was citizenship in God's kingdom. 
like Paul, uh, we probably have many kingdoms that would come to mind. Kingdoms in the world still, nations, empires. For Paul, there was the Roman Empire, still at the height of its splendor. For Paul, there was the Old Testament theocracy centered in Israel. That was part of his heritage. But God's kingdom is different. It is not Roman. God's kingdom is not Jewish. And it's worth saying God's kingdom is not American. As Jesus put it, God's kingdom is not of this world. Jesus has ushered in God's kingdom so that every person who trusts in Christ, regardless of where they live and what they look like, has God ruling in their hearts and is part of the kingdom. We await the king to return and establish his kingdom physically on earth. Until then, the kingdom reigns spiritually in the heart of all of Christ's people. Who are they now? Second, they are members of the household of God. They are more than those who live in the same neighborhood, on the same street, and being in this, of the same kingdom as the Jewish Christians. No, they are now part of the same house, the same family. This means not only that God is our father, but that fellow Christians are our brothers and our sisters. Now, put yourself in that situation. Think of how radical of a change this must have been for Jewish and Gentile believers. I mean, we talked about uh, for genuine Jewish believers, they would have went from thanking God every day that they weren't born a Gentile to calling other, other Gentiles brothers and sisters. Think of how radical of a change that is. That speaks of the glory, the reconciling power of Christ's work on the cross. We have a chance to display that too in our unity, in our diversity. When the bonds of Christ overcome the differences we may have with one another. Third, who they are now. They are now God's temple and God's dwelling place. For millennia, the temple in Jerusalem was a geographical center of God's people. But now there is a new center because Jesus has ushered in a king, the kingdom of God and has extended it beyond Israel to all nations, tribes, and languages. The new temple, the new dwelling place of God, is no longer God's holy place. It is God's holy people. It has for its foundation the apostles and the prophets. This might be a confusing phrase, so it's worth maybe a little bit of clarification. And it seems like it would contradict what even Paul has said in other places, like 1 Corinthians 3, where he said that no one can lay a foundation other than Jesus. So when he says here that the apostles and prophets are the temple's foundation, it must mean that the apostles and prophets are the foundation insofar as they teach us about Jesus. Remember, Jesus promised to send the Holy Spirit to the apostles so that they would teach the world the truth about Jesus. The apostles' teaching is encapsulated in Scripture. Put it all together. The way we have Christ as our foundation is to have the Scripture as our foundation. The Scripture is the apostle and prophet's teaching encapsulated. Paul says the cornerstone of this new temple is Christ Jesus himself. 
The cornerstone holds the building steady, determines its shape, keeps it in line. The only way we can be united is if we are united to Jesus. The only way we will grow is if we are united to Jesus, the cornerstone. Now think about, again, how this must have landed on the Gentile Christians in Ephesus. Formerly, they were prohibited from even entering the temple. Now they are the temple. Bound together with all those for whom Christ died. And even still, there are many physical buildings today which bear the name temple and claim to hold the presence of the divine. Even back then in the city of Ephesus, you might remember there was the temple of Artemis, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. But Paul is clear here that God's true home on earth is his ever-growing people who he has redeemed through Christ and in whom he dwells by his spirit. I don't want to leave this without trying to apply it a little bit. Uh, so you bear with me for a moment. Because as often the case, we, we see here both Jew, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians are the temple of God, part of the same church, have this beautiful new unity. But as often is the case with Christians, we do not live out who Christ has made us to be. The divisions and hostility that mark the world are regularly found in the church. Consider again that Paul wrote this section to people who felt marginalized and second class in the church. So we need to ask, who are the people in the church that we might make feel the same way? Who are the people in the church we might make feel marginalized and second class? I think scripture gives us a few categories of ideas. We talked about it at the very beginning. We can make poor people feel marginalized and second class in the church. I've talked to one person who told me that he wouldn't go back to a certain church because it was church for rich suburban people. It's not that we can't wear nice clothes. It's not that we can't have a nice building. But when we strive after a high quality of production and a high quality of appearance, we can become inaccessible to poor people and communicate that the standard for belonging is to have money. We may make those in the church who aren't knowledgeable, who haven't had deep spiritual experiences, feel like second-class citizens. Something like First John talks about this. So take how we approach community group, for instance. When we approach community group, however subtly, with the goal of trying to show off and trying to one-up each other on our responses, we discourage those who hesitate to chime in. We want to draw out and value each member of the church. Each of us has the spirit. Each of us has the same status before the Father because of Christ. Just a couple more examples. We may make those in the church who are from minority cultures feel like second-class citizens. I understand there's a very long history to this with a lot of factors, but this is a reason why Sunday mornings are the most segregated time in the United States. Maybe one more. We make those in the church, often is the case now, who are older, feel marginalized and second-class. 
There are so many churches. It's just the goal. We need to reach young people. We need to reach the next generation. That's not the intention of the New Testament church, even as we were talking about this morning in the course seminar. It's to reach all people, not just one demographic. So to live out the unity and reconciliation, Christ has won for us at the cross. We need to ask ourselves, what can I do to make sure that this is a community where the only standard for belonging is faith in Christ? That's it. Where everyone is on the same plane because of Christ. If we did this, we would be thoughtful of the ways we might treat people, certain people differently and with partiality. If we did this, we would be thoughtful of the experiences and perspectives of people who are different from us in the church. We'd be thoughtful of that. If we did this, friends, we would have other friends in the church besides those who have everything in common with us. Zoom back, pull out the camera, the whole passage. This whole passage reminds me of um, Emmanuel Church in Nashville. They have a mantra that sums up well who we were, what Christ has done, and who we are now. The unnatural mantra is this. I'm a complete idiot. My future is incredibly bright. Anyone can get in on it. Anyone can get in on this. I'm a complete idiot. This is our past, the past we still feel, the past that reminds us of our need for Jesus. My future is incredibly bright, not because of me, but because God has reconciled himself to me through Christ. Anyone can get in on this. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, rich, poor, anyone can believe in Jesus, become reconciled to God, be God's dwelling place, and have God as your home forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your grace. Your grace is so much more amazing than we think it is, that we allow ourselves to dwell on. Father, we confess that we can even sing words like amazing grace as dry. Show us yourself again of what you saved us from, that you alone have done it, and what you have made us to be. By your spirit, help us to live out what Christ has made us to be, to display the power of the gospel, to reconcile sinners to you and sinners to each other for your glory.